Hi and welcome to Rymdpodden, a podcast by the Swedish Youth Astronomy Society, Astronomisk Ungdom. I'm Jacob and I'm be your host for this episode. Today we have an exciting interview. We have talked with Chad Finley of Stockholm University. He's part of the team that works with the Ice Cube Detector, which is located at the South Pole and searches for cosmic neutrinos. They're very hard to detect and it can be even harder to find out exactly where they're coming from. But now we can read in the news that they have successfully located a source of a neutrino for the first time. Now let's get into our interview with Chad Finley. We're very happy to welcome Chad Finley, professor of uh, Stockholm University. Welcome. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Who are you? Who who am I? (laughs) Who are you? Uh, Well, I was just introduced. I'm associate professor at Stockholm University uh, in the physics department. And uh, I've been working for um, the last 10 years uh, in the U.S. and now in Stockholm on the Ice Cube project. And what is that? Ice Cube, its uh, official name is the Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory. And this is, uh, it's, some people have described it as the weirdest telescope on Earth. Okay. Uh, it is a, it's a telescope uh, observatory that's built into the ice at the South Pole in Antarctica, uh, oh. where the ice is three kilometers thick. And the sensors have been lowered into the ice about two and a half kilometers deep. Uh, covering almost one cubic kilometer in volume. And these sensors can detect neutrinos that come from, from outer space. Okay, cool. So that's interesting. That's a very uh, cool uh, telescope, if you want to call it, or detector. Yes, so yes. We're going to talk a bit about that. But before, can you tell us uh, a little bit more uh, about your academic path, how you got here, uh, what you've done in the, the past? I mean, I, I started off uh, as a... Uh, as a kid, very interested in, in science and uh, astronomy. And then when I went to college in, in New York at Columbia University, I also got a lot of more interested in history and philosophy, and I wasn't so sure that I wanted to do uh, physics, and, and which a lot of my friends were doing at that time. And so when they went off to graduate school, I went to study. I stayed there and went on to study philosophy and, and literature and philosophy of science. Okay. And then I came back eventually to doing proper physics. It seemed like the best fit. Philosophy of physics is actually a very hard field. Yeah. Uh, progress in my field is slow, but progress in philosophy of physics is extremely slow. Mm-hmm. It, it takes generations to you know, to work out solutions to problems. Uh, so I came back to physics, and I did my PhD at Columbia in physics. Um, and okay. And then I went to do, um, started with the Ice Cube project as a postdoc in Wisconsin, and from there came to Stockholm University and continued on Ice Cube. Okay. Here. Have you always been uh, interested in physics and particle physics? Yeah, except for this period of time when I wasn't. <laughs> uh, so that's maybe the unusual thing. I, I mean, I, I was, uh, from, from being a little kid, I was interested in the animals around me and the dinosaurs, and then I yeah. discovered atoms. I was very interested in that, and um, I mean, the universe is full of interesting things on so many different levels. It's hard to pick sometimes that you're going to devote, you know, your career to just one of those. So it took me extra long to make that decision. Okay. So the Ice Cube. Um, I read an article recently 
that said, uh, quote, scientists have made the first observation of cosmic neutrinos, uh, thereby opening a new window into the universe, uh, end quote. And uh, I was hoping you can tell us a bit uh, more. What can we see through this new window and why? How how did we open the window and what can we see through the window? Yes, yeah. I mean, it was a, there was a long history of that from people knowing that you could see neutrinos from space um, to actually realizing it. Uh, people actually started to detect neutrinos from the sun uh, many decades ago. And, and from that, people were able to study uh, fusion inside the, the sun. Um, and people were able to realize that there weren't enough neutrinos coming from the sun co- compared to predictions from, from nuclear reactions and how bright the sun was observed to be. And that eventually led to people realizing that neutrinos could oscillate. They could change from one flavor okay. to another. So you started off with this story about studying neutrinos and nuclear reactions and, and sort of local astronomy with the sun to it feeding back into discoveries about the neutrino properties themselves. And it meant neutrinos have a little bit of mass. It's the only way we know so far that they have that they have this mass. Um, so then there's also been, you know, from that time, an idea that you could see neutrinos from other parts of the universe much farther away. Yeah. Um, and that happened once again, not so far away when a star exploded in 1987. Um, and again, these were sort of neutrinos at the nuclear energy scale um, that people saw that came from this this star that exploded about 150,000 light years from here, a little bit outside our galaxy. But with IceCube, the goal has been to see cosmic neutrinos, what we call them. And these are neutrinos that are much higher energy. They're around a million to billion times higher energy than the ones that are created in nuclear reactions like in, in stars and supernova. Yeah. And that's what we started to, with a series of telescopes that were bigger and bigger, starting in the, the 90s, what was called the Amanda Telescope, even earlier efforts in the sea by Hawaii in the 80s called Dumont, people started to build neutrino telescopes, these sensors in some dark place where uh, a neutrino interaction would make a little burst of light and you could it would, it would be detected by these modules. Okay. And... Um, the first challenge was to see neutrinos at all, and the first neutrinos that were the interactions that were seen with the detector are neutrinos that are created in our own atmosphere when when cosmic rays strike the upper atmosphere. Yeah. So that was that was a success of sorts with 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 Amanda uh, in the late 90s that the detector worked; it could see neutrinos. The challenge was then to make a bigger detector that could see the rare neutrinos from from deep space. Okay. from millions of light years away, even billions of light years away. And that the, that, the challenge is that those neutrinos are much rarer. So out of 100,000 neutrinos a year that we see, uh, most of those are from the atmosphere. And only 10, 20, 30 are high energy ones from, from space. And picking okay. those out has been the real challenge. So that's what we started to do in, a few years ago, is to have enough statistics to say we can we can see these these neutrinos from that are really high energy from from deep space and not from our atmosphere. Okay. Uh, why did I build the ice cube on the South Pole? The first large effort to do this was in uh, in the sea instead of uh, outside of Hawaii, okay. which in some ways is a nicer location. <laughs> uh, so your two, I mean, your two options for making 
this kind of neutrino telescope with this goal to see cosmic neutrinos yeah. are are um, essentially water or ice. Um, and the more obvious one is water. But what you need is um, you need the, the the neutrinos tend to pass through almost all matter, and they certainly will go through the air with no with no problem because there's not much matter in the air. Yeah. With water, with rock, you have a lot more matter, and so there's a lot more for them to interact with. It's still, most likely that they're not going to interact. The vast majority of neutrinos just pass through the detector and, and pass through the Earth and don't do anything. Yeah. Um, but you you have a chance at least in in um, and water rock that a few of them will interact. And then you want that material to be clear so when that interaction happens, what it means to interact is it creates other particles which have charge and they're flying close to the speed of light and they, they radiate Cherenkov light. Yeah. So they make this blue glow and you can that blue glow is the signature that, that something interacted and these particles are created. And okay. if, if the direction of that is upwards then you know that it was created by something coming up. That means it was coming up through the Earth, and the okay. only particles that come up mm. that pass through the Earth to get to your detector are neutrinos. So that's that's your baseline filter. You take only things that are going upwards. Okay. And so you use the Earth as the filter. The Earth is the filter, exactly. That's you take cool. only... Th- yes. You have a tremendous amount of things that are coming down through our detector. So we have, we have 3,000 cosmic rate events every second in the detector and everything that's going down you can find you can find interesting events going down but it's a bit more complicated so the simplest way to think about it is you just you skip everything that's throwing down you're coming okay. down you throw it out and you take only stuff that's going up then you know it's a neutrino you still have a lot of neutrinos that are created by the atmosphere yeah. but you get that burst of light um and so you can you know you need the the modules can't be in rock because then there wouldn't be anything to any way for the light to reach the yeah. modules. Yeah. Our m- modules are about 125 meters apart in the ice horizontally. Mm. So it's, a, it's mostly space. So you want you want where that interaction happens, you want it to be really clear so that the light can go 50, 60, 100 meters to hit the to hit the modules and be detected. Mm. Um, and it turns out deep sea and uh, deep uh, ice are both very clear. The deep ice at the South Pole is extremely clear. Uh, deep seawater, like in the Mediterranean, is also very clear. Um, those are both good places, and they both have pros and, and cons. The advantage at South Pole turned out to be that there was already a research station there. So there was infrastructure, yeah. there was power, and you just have the challenge of drilling the holes and, and putting the modules in, but then everything runs. Yeah, and there's a lot of modules, as I've heard. 5,160 modules. That's a lot of modules. Put <laughs> into the ice, yeah. I was there for the last season when we were putting in the, the last uh, batch of seven strings with 60 each. Yeah. And um, when you're doing it one at a time, as someone said, one of our PhD students who was there with me after we had done like the first 30 that day, and he yeah. said, you, you realize 5,160 is a really large <laughs> number. The idea of it, – it's tough, it's tough conditions. I mean, it's just everything you do at the South Pole takes so much more energy than it, than it should, than, it, than you normally would expect it to. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a 
it's a very good environment for research. There are other telescopes there. There are radio telescopes. There's climate research and stuff. It's a, it's a, yeah. it's a center for doing science at the South Pole. Uh, and the ocean presents challenges in that the, your modules are moving. They're drifting yeah. with the currents. There's things growing and, and swimming around. There's light emitting bacteria and, and little other creatures and, and things. You have submarines sometimes that can pack. So uh, there's some nice properties with, with uh, ocean water, but it's also more of a, a challenge. So there's okay. another group that's building. Uh, they built a small neutrino telescope hmm. in the Mediterranean called Antares, and they're trying to scale this up to something called KM3Net, which would be the size of Ice Cube. Okay, okay cool. That's cool. So we're trying to find neutrinos here. Uh, let's uh, see if we can get a nice uh, explanation of what a neutrino is. Because <laughs> some of our listeners uh, maybe only know particles from from the Bohr model. Yeah. Uh, so then maybe know what an atom is. Yeah. They're made from quarks. Yes. Is neutrinos also made of quarks or no? How does this no, work? but they're 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 down at this they're down at the same level. Uh, so you start with the atom, and on the outside you have the electrons, and the inside okay. you have the protons and neutrons. Yes. And the protons and neutrons turn out to be made of more fundamental things called quarks. And in, the, in that case, there's, you only need two kinds of quarks to make protons and, and neutrons, but we know there's six mm-hmm. quarks. Mm-hmm. They, co- they come in pairs, and so there's three families. And the other four are more massive and they're unstable, so if they tend to pretty quickly decay back down to the, the two basic ones, the up and the down quark. Um, it's not surprising that the matter around us is made of the stable kind. Mm-hmm. And the unstable kind, it gets created in these interactions, but it decays fast. So you have, um, in some sense, a family of the electron, the up quark, and the down quark as these three fundamental particles that, that make the, the atom. Yeah. And there's one more particle that's sort of in that family which is the neutrino, which you don't hear as much about. But it's, uh, on the one hand, it's kind of the cousin of the electron. So the electron and the neutrino are kind of pairs. Um, on the other hand, the, the main place that neutrinos are created is, is nuclear uh, reactions. So when quarks, because it's, when quarks interact, uh, there's often anything that's a nuclear process, there's often... A neutrino that's involved. So the reason you don't hear about it in this family of really four particles is that the neutrino is is um, it's super light, like almost a million times as light as the electron, which is otherwise the lightest particle. It's very light, yeah. And um, it has no charge, which is the way that almost everything we know about interacts with each other. Um, and so it can only interact by what's called the weak force is very weak. And so when these neutrinos get created, and they get created all the time, they just fly out of that place where they're born, and they just tend to zip off in the universe and never interact with anything again. It's a very weird, it's a very weird existence, you know, yes. the neutrino. They just, they're created abundantly, and then they fly off and, and never interact again, except for these super rare ones that happen to hit the earth in our detector you yeah. can't imagine how unlucky that neutrino is that it's you know it ends it ends its existence in somebody's detector uh so they're they surround us they're they're everywhere it's it's the it is the most uh after light after photons the next most abundant particle in the universe is the neutrino but it 
you know, it's almost, it's a ghost particle. It's almost uh, has no um, interaction with us, but it can tell us a lot uh, about the universe. I mean, we've we've learned a lot about about the particle physics and also in, in yeah. astronomy from from studying the neutrino. Yeah, I've heard you can learn a lot from black holes, supernova. Is that true? And um, have we learned anything from IceCube yet, uh, or is it still doing research from the data you collected? So what we've learned from IceCube is, um, uh, I mean, we've learned a lot from neutrino experiments over the over the past um, more than half a century. Yeah. Uh, what we've learned at IceCube, we're still sort of halfway to to our goal, um, yeah. and and the goal is. Um, there was a prediction that there should be these high-energy neutrinos. It wasn't uh, in space. It, it wasn't just a completely random idea to go look for okay. super high-energy neutrinos in, in space. Um, the prediction came from the it goes back to these cosmic rays, which people mm-hmm. discovered more than a century ago. And ex- we know that they're extremely high-energy cosmic rays in the universe, and they hit our atmosphere every day. And no one knows where these really high energy cosmic rays come from in the universe, but it has to be some extreme environment. There has to be a particle accelerator or many particle accelerators that are, you know, a million times more powerful than, than what we have in, in Switzerland at, at CERN. Mm. Uh, nature has some extraordinary particle accelerators and we don't know where they are yet. There's a lot of guesses, um, but we know that something is making these high-energy cosmic rays and dumping them into space. We see those. And the idea was that wherever that happens, there are probably interactions that create neutrinos. Okay. So we have a lot of particles, yes. but we don't know where they come from. We don't know where... They, so now we've started to see the neutrinos. And the difference between the neutrinos and the cosmic rays and the neutrinos, will, they, since they don't interact on the way here, they'll point back to where they came from. Yeah. The cosmic rays don't point back to where they came from. Their paths are bent because mm-hmm. they're charged yeah, particles. Because it's uh, light, basically. Yeah, so it's the, that's, the, that's why it's a telescope. The idea yeah. is that the same way that light points back, it's useful to okay. study because it points back to where it came from, so you can see something there. Mm. Uh, the neutrino is pointing back also to its, its source. The challenge is that it, it's hard to get enough neutrinos to make sort of this image of the sky and to start to... Okay, so you can correlate the detection of neutrinos with uh, the cosmic rays? Not directly, but the, we can by, by the energetics. So the neutrinos seem to have an energy uh, distribution that matches what we'd expect, that they're connected to cosmic rays. But the neutrinos will... Um, the neutrinos, we hope, will eventually will be able to pinpoint you know, which sources, which objects... In the in the sky okay. that they're coming from, and then we will that will tell us something about what the cosmic rays are doing there. Okay. But the the um, it's been very hard to try to correlate directly the direction of a cosmic ray we see on Earth and the neutrino because mm. the cosmic ray we see on Earth has been wandering in some crazy path yeah. for its lifetime before it got here. Okay. Do you have any? Uh, leading theories or some theory that you you like? Yes, there's there's um, there, there have been a lot of theories that have come and gone. Uh, one um, uh, that was popular uh, 
but we seem to not have we seem to have evidence against it at this point. It was a gamma ray burst, mm -hmm. uh, the the long gamma ray burst when when a massive star explodes mm -hmm. and, and creates a, a jet of particles. Um, there's uh, these are some of the brightest things in the universe because they when we see them it's it's because the jets pointed at us. We don't see the ones where the jets pointed away from us. Yeah. And this had been one place where people could have theorized that neutrinos came from. But okay. if that was the case, we should have seen a connection of our neutrinos to gamma ray bursts by now. Um, okay. And so that is something we haven't seen. What we have started to see uh, is a connection. It's still tentative at this point, but we started to see a connection to something else called blazars. And blazars are... Um, so besides gamma ray bursts, which make jets when the star explodes and collapses to a black hole, yeah. uh, galaxies with supermassive black holes to center that are busy feeding on matter, yeah. they also make jets. Okay. And we can see lots of galaxies with jets coming out. And when sometimes of the galaxies oriented just right so that the jet's pointing at us, mm -hmm. that's also super bright. It used to be called quasars. And um, now it's it's uh, a number of different objects like this are called go under the name of blazar. They changed the name, or <laughs> yeah, there's there's a, there's a there's a there's, there's a complicated history of, of people realizing that many many things that were being cataloged differently uh, were actually the same kinds of objects, but seen at different angles. For example, different uh, as people started to piece this together. So blazar, blazar is a word now that covers all of these these objects, these galaxies, supermassive black holes with jets that okay. point at us. And um, so if you're looking down the jet, it's a little bit like you're looking down a, the beam of a particle accelerator. Hmm. And uh, we have in this last fall, let's see, in September 2017, we had a a high energy event which we sent out a public alert for. We only have a few a year that are this high energy. And so it's a very good chance it's a real high energy neutrino from space. Mm. And um, there were gamma ray telescopes like the Fermi satellite, also the MAGIC telescope, uh, which pointed in that direction uh, or looked back at data that they had from that direction and could see that their neutrino exactly overlapped with, with the blazar that was in a, in a active state. Uh, so it was, it was much higher emission than it ever had been before. Uh, and this has started um, uh, started us on the path of really investigating this connection with, with blazars. Yeah. And it's, it's starting to look like at least a fraction of the neutrinos that, that we see mm. uh, maybe coming from, from this place. This might be one of the, the what we call cosmic accelerators. I see. And did you find any evidence that this is the source of this? Uh, that is ongoing. Okay. So there will be there will hopefully be more to say about that uh, soon. But that's something that we're actively uh, looking at. Okay. okay. Yeah. So to be continued. To be yeah. to be continued. <laughs> yes. Yes. It, it's it's always like that. Almost every almost everything you know. If you answer one question, you open to more. Exactly. Yes. Oh. Yeah. We always have to keep exploring. Yes, and uh, yes. explore the universe. Yes. And so, 
except this, what does the future hold of neut neutrino uh, detectors and physics and science in general? Uh, what more can we learn uh, that we have not yet learned? Uh, there's there's quite a lot, and in, in, I mean within my field, um, the people are looking at how to build the what would be become the next generation of neutrino telescope. Um, it depended uh, each step has depended on you know what you saw before and how so you can yeah. figure out how to optimize. Um, and so what we're learning now will influence the kind of uh, neutrino detectors that we want uh, to build in, in the next stage, in the next 10 and 20 years. Um, the, for example, the kinds of things you need to decide are what, what's most important. Is it going to be the, the, the size of the detector just to get the number of events, or is it going to be the, the angular resolution? How well can you, how, how accurately can you pinpoint the direction? And then you the need, need more detectors for that. You need more detectors, but how you, how you, for example, how you place them in the in the ice. Yeah. Um, you can, if you if you if you put them farther apart, then you can get a bigger detector with the same number of of modules. Yeah. Um, and but you may trade off size and, and the number of events you have mm. with the the pointing accuracy. Okay. And so if we are if we had been seeing um, if the first evidence we had been seeing was was galactic sources. Um, it's thought that so we haven't seen any any yet from from sources in our own galaxy. Okay. Then it's thought that angular resolution might not be as as critical. Um, but if we're seeing extragalactic sources, then it may be that the most important thing is is to get really accurate pinpoint pinpointing ability. Okay. Uh, so this can this influences the kind of the you know the, the next telescope you want depends on the things you find with the one you have. The neutrinos in general are a very big topic in, in particle physics also. Yeah. There's still a lot we don't know about the, the neutrinos. Um, we know the differences in their masses. There's, so there's three kinds. I didn't go into that. But okay. just like there were three families of quarks, yes. there's three families of electrons. Uh, there's a heavier partners of the electron called the muon and the tau particle. Oh, oh. I didn't know that. Yeah, so that so they and those are also unstable. So muons and taus will, if they're created sooner or later, pretty soon they they decay back to the electron, the the so the lightest in the family, or the lightest member of this this kind of particle. Oh. The neutrinos come. The neutrinos match each one of those. The electron has an electron neutrino, the muon has a muon neutrino, and the tau has a tau neutrino, and then so you have these three families of four particles. Each, um, and we know the mass differences between the neutrinos, but we don't know the act the, the actual value of the mass. Oh. We only know you know mass two minus mass one and, and oh. so on, because okay. this is what we get from the oscillations. The fact that neutrinos can change hmm. So people want to understand this. They want to understand um, uh, where the neutrino gets its mass from. You may have heard that at um, at uh, the LHC, the Atlas experiment and, and CMS experiment, they discovered uh, the Higgs boson oh, a yeah. few years ago. Yes. And the Higgs is the particle that gives the other particles mass. 
creates all the mass. It's not clear that the Higgs is responsible for the neutrinos having mass. Okay. The neutrinos may not get their mass from the same mechanism. Um, and so there's a lot of, in particle physics, there's a lot of weird things about the neutrino. It's it's there. and it, They are really ghosts. They're really ghosts. They're, they're, I mean, they're, they're very... They're they're created and, and important in a lot of interactions, even though they they fly away afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may be that the the some of the weird properties in the neutrino are responsible for why we exist at all, because the in particle physics, matter and antimatter have identical properties. They're, there's essentially mirror image of each other, and in the early universe. In a symmetric universe, uh, you would have equal amounts of matter and antimatter, and it would have all annihilated, and there'd be nothing left. Yeah. Somehow, in this early annihilation process, there is more matter than antimatter, and so in the end, you had matter left over, and that's that's us. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to figure out how that asymmetry started, and the neutrinos may have the the properties that can that can lead to that asymmetry. Uh, so understanding more neutrino about neutrinos and, and particle physics may take us back to the biggest questions at the beginning okay. of the universe. How would we go about if we want to uh, determine the masses of these different neutrinos? Can we build the detectors? We never detect the neutrinos. We take the particles that's produced when the neutrinos interact with something else. Yeah, so, so we get more light if it's heavier or is that So the way the way you try to measure these properties of neutrinos is uh you can do some of this with neutrino telescopes, but you um uh you have a, there's also completely different kinds of, of you might think of more like particle physics experiments yeah. uh, that happen in a lab uh, where you can you can make very controlled Measurements. Um, some of these, so some of these properties, like how the neutrinos oscillate from one to another, which can tell you something about the mass. This is done um, at particle accelerators. They can create a beam of particles, which then creates a beam of of the use that to create a beam of neutrinos, and then you can you can you can put another neutrino detector many kilometers away underground. And, and study, you know, how many neutrinos have oscillated along the way. Uh, for neutrino mass, you can try to uh, you can try to study nuclear reactions that create neutrinos. And what happens is uh, you don't see um, one kind of radioactive decay. An electron comes out of the nucleus, and a neutrino comes out. You don't see the neutrino directly, but you can measure the energy of the electron. And if you can measure the energy of the electron and the, the energy, and you know the energy of the interaction, yeah. you know something about the energy of the neutrino carried okay. away. And if you do this really sensitively, you may be able to say something about the mass of the neutrino in that case. Um, but it's 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 very hard. These are these are very hard laboratory experiments. Yeah. Uh, do you have any? Uh, is there a next telescope that are planned? Not a telescope, but a detector uh, that will uh, the, the younger, or I guess the younger younger sister of of uh, Ice Cube. The the next thing there's uh, for Ice Cube, um, 
we have we have a near term plan for something called an upgrade. Okay. Uh, but that's a very that's actually a very small um, improvement, which will uh, we will put a few more modules in in the ice in the next five years. But the main purpose of that. It's not going to be so many compared to the 5,000 we already have. Mm. The main purpose of that would be um, to make better measurements of how light propagates in the ice because that's the, that's the limiting factor for how well we can study the neutrinos. Okay. So we put these improved devices in the ice to, to measure this, and then we can actually recalibrate all the data we've already taken. Okay. Um, the long term is called Ice Cube Gen 2. And this is this is, you know, will go to the end of my career and be what <laughs> other people uh, take up. Uh, that's something that's you know, a, you know, quite a, a scale, a, a much larger step, yeah. uh, larger than Ice Cube. And at the same time, um, right now the 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 people who work in the Mediterranean Sea, they're upgrading their detector that was called Antares to to KM3Net, and that will be comparable to a little bit better than, than IceCube uh, that we have now. Uh, so it will be a little bit like you have you know, an IceCube in each hemisphere, which is good if you remember that we yeah. use the Earth as a, as a filter. Yeah. Yeah. So our best view from the South Pole mm-hmm. of the sky is the northern sky that we see oh. through the Earth. <laughs> so if you want to see the southern sky... It, it, it helps to have a neutrino detector in the, the northern hemisphere. Yeah. And the, the galactic center is you know, it, well into the southern sky. So if you want to study the center of our galaxy, yeah. uh, it's easiest to do with a northern hemisphere telescope like, like Antares or KM3Net. Okay. So Cube Gen 2 would be in the northern hemisphere? You would no, I think I, the plan for Gen 2 would be at the South Pole to keep, cool. to keep okay. building there. Yeah, There are also plans for um, a different technology, a radio technology, uh, to do even higher energy neutrinos than, than uh, what we mainly see with IceCube. Okay. Uh, these would be energies that go all the way up to the highest energies that people see with, with cosmic rays. Um, and uh, it, it's, if I Think, you know more than a billion times the energy of the particles that are that are created at, at CERN uh, in in the accelerator there, yeah. and these are so these are radio rays that would just be on the surface and they can be they can be on ice. Um, there and there are some groups uh, here in Sweden, uh, so us and also with Uppsala University yeah. looking at a radio array in, in Antarctica. It could be on the coast on the Ross Ice Shelf, or it could be also at the South Pole. Okay. Um, and that's, um, that's a new technology, a new way to, to do this. And it's also, we don't know how many neutrinos. It's the same thing all over again. We don't know how many neutrinos there will be at the ultra-high energies. Okay. Um, so it's a, it's a first. So you could say you only seen... find out that. Yes, yes. <laughs> You've only seen a few... Uh, a little part of the spectrum on neutrinos, you say. And you don't know if there's more. Yeah, we've seen now, we've jumped. If you if you look at the highest energy gamma rays um, that people can do astronomy with, so so people, can, we can use uh, 
I don't know how familiar everyone is with TEV, uh, the Terra Electron Volt, but um, uh, you know it's some it's some unit and and particles at, at protons at CERN are accelerated to yeah. seven TeV, and they collide you know seven TeV against seven TeV. Um, gamma ray astronomy can go up to this energy seven TeV and a little bit higher, looking at photons okay. coming from space at these energies. But the problem is, um, the problem becomes that photons with TeV energies have trouble propagating through space because they're at such high energy, they start to interact with all the other low-energy light mm-hmm. in space. So you don't get 50 TeV photons from galaxies far away, which is where the cosmic accelerators are. They don't, they don't make it. They okay. interact along the way. Mm-hmm. So the sky... The gamma ray astronomy, it goes dark ex- outside beyond our galaxy. We need to get up to 50 TeV, 100 TeV. This is just where neutrino astronomy is starting. Mm-hmm. Neutrino astronomy really gets going above 50 TeV. And we see neutrinos now in this range of you know, from 10 TeV up to 1,000 TeV. And it's, it's kind of amazing because it's exactly this energy range where, where you, you can't do gamma ray astronomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you built the telescope, the, you, the, we're blind to what's going on in those energies outside our galaxy. And then the idea of this is, can you keep going with this radio arrays yeah. uh, and see things that are that are you know, up to a million TeV? Uh, that's that's the range we haven't we haven't gotten to yet. But we're already, in some sense, it's a uh, when we talk about multi messenger astronomy and how it's complementary with other forms of astronomy. This neutrino astronomy is a way of, of working in an energy range that uh, it's not accessible to to other ways of studying the cosmos. Okay. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about how it was to build the, uh, the ice cube uh, detector? I've heard. How long did it take? Yeah, and I've read stories about you know the scientists or. Uh, uh, they usually sit behind their desk, and now they take their stuff and go down to the South Pole and get get dirty. They have to work with their hands. <laughs> yes, yes, a, yeah. You know, well, they don't get very dirty. That's the one thing at the South Pole. <laughs> you, you, you get cold, yes. uh, but you don't get very dirty. Um, yes, it, it was. Um, I can. I, I, mean, I can say actually, it was. It was uh, when I went down, which was towards the end of Ice Cube. It was also. I know it was much easier. Than it had been for the people who started in the oh. '90s with with Amanda. Yeah. Um, it's um, uh, but yeah, scientists went down, and also there was sort of there were open calls to other people. A lot of people who weren't astronomers or physicists, yeah, but who saw this, I know from Stockholm and Uppsala, uh, joined you know, biologists, but had a chance to go down and work for a few months oh. in the, at the South Pole. It's an opportunity yeah. to go somewhere. Um, it's um, By the time that I got there in 2010, uh, you have, a, a, you know, you fly into the coast from New Zealand, uh, and there's a town of about a thousand people called McMurdo. Okay. Um, and from there, you have another short flight to the South Pole. Uh, it's a few hours on this small military propeller plane. And Is it boring? What's that? Is it Bo- boring? Boring? No. 
That is definitely not that. Uh, that is definitely not boring. Uh, at least not the first time. Maybe for people who go down. You, you being on these military planes, uh, you're not treated very well. Okay. <laughs> I, I, you know, after that, I would never complain about uh, being treated poorly on a on a regular airline because, you know, there you're kind of like cargo as far as uh, the military is is concerned. It's um, uh, and you don't know the plane may take off or the may ch- not take off because of changes in weather and mm-hmm. you've packed everything and then you you know no you know there's no apologies or anything mm-hmm. uh, uh, but it I mean it's experience to be on these these kinds of of planes uh, and if you have a good view uh, if it's not cloudy which it wasn't when I was going down to the South Pole uh, from the base. Then you fly over the the Trans Antarctic Mountain Range, and this is phenomenal. I mean, this is just really it's it's beautiful to be able to look out the window and and, and see this mountain range, and you can see the glacier uh, where Scott's team went up uh, as they went to the to the South Pole, and to look down there and to think that these people were were it wasn't like Amundsen who had dog sleds; they they just dragged themselves up this glacier. It's, it's just unbelievable. I mean, it's an insane activity that they yeah. undertook, not knowing exactly where they were going, and they and they didn't survive mm-hmm. on their way back. Um, you get to the South Pole, and I really did have the feeling that I was at the end of the world. <laughs> that this is as far as you you get yeah. from anything. Maybe, you're, and it's as close as you get to being. Uh, what I dreamed of when I was little, when I was eight, was like you know living in space and being in a space colony, and, yeah. and I saw 2001, and I, you know this is what I thought was going to happen. And as I gradually got older, I realized it wasn't going to happen in time, for in my lifetime. Uh, and uh, this is kind of you know maybe as close as I get to it. This isolated research station yeah. that looks like um, a snow planet. And you and you see a few people going around, but they're completely covered up. And you can't recognize them. Uh, it's about minus forty degrees is sort of the typical temperature. Um, and now, when you're when you're working on um, for the for the construction of Ice Cube and the drilling, uh, there's an in, sort of an enclosed module around it. So you can be sort of comfortable and take off your your coat. But during Amanda time, they were out in the open when they were and they were doing this. And if you have to work out in the open and it's minus forty or minus fifty and there's wind, this is this is really hard. Yeah. Um, it's about um, it's a few thousand meters high in, ter- it's in terms of uh, it's a little bit less than that. But there's also it's continually low pressure, so that there's a lack of oxygen. There. So when you arrive, the first few days, you're not supposed to. You know, first couple of days, you're not supposed to do any heavy work or anything. Okay. Just mm. to try to to get used to that. Mm. When people, some people who spend a few months there, and they go back to McMurdo on the coast. Yeah. There's um, if they're at the right time, there's a race there, and the race is almost always won by people who've just spent three months at the. South Pole because they have their red blood cells are oh. you know, supercharged and they, they they have you know now they're at sea level yeah. uh, so they they're, they're unbeatable. It's a perfect uh, doping 
Yeah, it is. It's completely legal doping. Yeah, yeah. and you're just you're just energized, and uh, yeah, I think year after year, you're really successful. Um, yeah, and, you, and this station you have uh, in the summertime, so that's that's like November to February. You have about. Uh, it holds about 150 people. You can have more people in, in sort of some some yeah. tents, these tent-like structures that, <laughs> that are heated that you live in outside. You can go up to 200 people, and then towards the end of February, uh, most of those people leave, and you have around 40, 45 people mm. who will stay for the winter. So mm. the, the the station sort of closes, the last flight takes off, and then those those people from the end of February till October are more or less on their own in the dark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Six, the dark. six months of, of darkness, darkness. Yes. Oh, yes. It's very dark. So one of our students just did, he just did that last year. He was a, okay. a PhD student. He graduated and that was what he wanted to do <laughs> his first year after his PhD was winter over. So Imagine you can see the the stars pretty well. Absolutely. There. I mean, you can find uh, the almost, almost the southern lights. You see the auroras. A tremendous number of auroras. Yeah. Uh, you see, almost everyone who goes down invests in who's going to do that. Invest in some serious uh, photography equipment yeah. because yeah. you're going to have to also find something to do <laughs> for, these, for these months. And uh, he, our, our student Martin Wolf, you can find his stuff online. He he took oh. extraordinary pictures of the station and of the sky and, and did astrophotography. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean it's 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 a commitment to get to see this and to stay there for a whole you actually stay for a whole year yeah. including that time but <gasps> it's unique that's really almost like living on another planet <laughs> yeah. very isolated so when do you think we will be living on another planet it's a hard question that's yeah that I don't know I guess uh, I guess Musk is saying you know quite soon but it seems like a very uh, it seems like a very ambitious schedule to get people living on on uh, Mars, yeah, um, I, uh, I don't know. It's it's yeah. certainly not as fast as uh, I thought when I was a kid. But maybe it's it's one of these things that like nothing happens for a long time and then suddenly. Yeah, I think it, it gets accelerated a lot by the pressure of war in the in the Cold War as a competition between the Russians and Americans. Mm. And without that, when that competition went down, then the pressure. Yeah. It, came back almost to zero. But yeah. now I think it's coming slowly up without yes. the, the military. <laughs> without yeah. uh, any war. Yeah, without any war pressure from war. Uh, it's Slowly but surely. It's, um, I mean, I think Amundsen and Scott arrived at the South Pole uh, was it 1911. Um, and, you know, that it was, that was the age of exploration and that, it, that you know, that 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 goal to get there and the ability to do it and to push yourself and to like you know be able to to make it there yeah uh when that happened you know there was a race to be the first and and you know it was even it was a fatal race for some people who participated mm-hmm. but it was achieved and then no one went back mm-hmm. for almost half a century mm-hmm. because you know initially other than being first there wasn't much point no. to being there no. yeah. And then, you know, a permanent research station at the South Pole started in late, mid or late 50s by the U.S., and it's been mm-hmm. occupied ever since. Um, 
So I sometimes think that space may be the same thing. You know, the moment that the moment that humanity could get to the moon, there was a race to do it yeah. and be first. But at the time, other than being first, there really wasn't much purpose. Yeah. And so then you have this long period of nothing happening until until it becomes more feasible and, and it becomes more practical and you have a purpose for doing it. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm very hopeful. Yeah, it seems like uh, most uh, space agencies have directed their their focus towards the moon yeah. right now. Yeah, hopefully they will work together to achieve the goal. There's there's real motion now yeah. in, in the rocket world. Yeah, and new maybe also new materials can make a difference. We're finding a way to make it cost effective. Yes, and it's very different from the last time we went there. Uh, now we have a lot of private companies. Yeah. <laughs> I think we have to say soon because maybe it will never happen otherwise. Yeah, I would say mid twenties. Yes, <laughs> we say that. We will see. We can place a bet and see. <laughs> yeah, <that's right>. <laughs> <laughs> it would be interesting competition. Yes, it would okay. be. And um, we heard you also. You listened to a talk. Uh, And you did you talk about something about black holes? Yes, you did when you were here last so time. You studied black holes as well. Uh, I'm just curious. N- not uh, not directly, but um, uh, they. It's interesting. They come up again and again. Actually, from yeah. from being something that was uh, started as sort of a, a crazy mathematical idea yeah. to something that, even though it's not observable uh, directly. Indirectly, it's such a you know interesting and active yeah. thing in the universe. So, um, so they come up. They come up when we, all of these things that can create neutrinos. If they're coming from these jets, these jets usually come from from black hole that's at the center of a galaxy that's eating yeah. matter, or when the, when the star explodes and 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 a black hole is formed, there's matter falling in. Then yeah. too. Um, But they also come up, um, and the the other connection I had uh, that I talked about recently in, in gravitational wave studies. So um, these gravitational yeah. wave telescopes that have tried to do multi-messenger astronomy to see the universe in gravitational waves. Yeah. Um, you know the the thing they were most sure that they would be able to find eventually with enough patience is is neutron stars. Merging when two neutron stars orbit each other and they spiral yeah. in, they would make gravitational waves and um, probably form a black hole. But there'd be a big explosion before, mm-hmm. and, and you'd see it in gravitational waves, and you'd see it in light. But they also discovered, really to almost everyone's surprise, black hole pairs of black holes that had been orbiting each other that, yeah. that finally merged as as say. They lose energy by radiating gravitational waves, and they eventually merge. Mm. And um, these black holes that they first saw were each one was 30 times the mass of the sun. Mm. So there must have been much more massive stars that had died and made these. And you know, this was um, it, it's not impossible, but no one there was no predictions for how many pairs of black holes the universe had because no one had any way to no one had ever been able to measure. Yeah. Pairs of black. There's no other way to to detect that there's a pair of black holes yeah. orbiting each other. It turns out 
that LIGO sees these fairly often. So there's lots of pairs of, of black holes. Um, and this is really, you know, this is amazing physics where uh, a black hole, a black hole merging with another black hole, at that moment it's not just this simple spherical symmetric solution mm -hmm. to general relativity. This is something really dynamic. Yeah. And uh, as, as these two, as the event horizons merge, as an enormous amount of energy is radiated. So yeah. that first merger radiated in gravitational waves, which just means the stretching of, of space-time. Yeah. It radiated as much energy equal to uh, the sort of mass equivalent, an mc squared of three times the mass of the sun. At that moment, for a fraction of a second, it was radiating more energy than everything else in the universe that was radiating energy. It, it, it's, it's just a... It's a phenomenal That's cool. thing that happens. It's really, it's really cool, and it, and it, it, it's, in a sense, you know, just invisible. It's just this ripple in space time that yeah. carries a huge amount of energy that just ripples away at the speed of light. Um, and but we see that by the very small stretching of space time here, as that yeah. ripple goes past us. Um, and so here also, besides just knowing that the universe has these things in it and that they they're they're a part of our universe. Yeah. You're also able to study. Um, you know, you start to get some insight into, as a lab, what what is space time? What is the stretching of space time? It's just really it's just stuff yeah. that we have equations to describe. And, and so far, the equations from general relativity a hundred years ago seem to describe pretty well what's what we what we've seen. I always seen black holes as uh, the one supermassive black hole at the center of each galaxy. Yeah. But apparently there's a lot of smaller black holes oh. orbiting. This I, I saw an article not too long ago that we have a lot of uh, more black holes around uh, orbiting the supermassive black holes. But there's certainly um, if you if you start with the idea that most galaxies, big and small, have yeah. black holes around them. Yeah. There are sorry, black holes at the center. Um and they're you know, they're kind of like the nucleus of, of galaxies. Yeah. Um and you know the one in our galaxy is uh, I think a few million solar masses, but some are you know up to a billion solar masses, just mm. gigantic black holes. Um and you also think that, that galaxies bigger galaxies form over time by the merger of small galaxies. Yeah. Then you you know, the galaxies may merge and the stars sort of come together and form a new yeah. collective disk because they interact. But the black holes from those galaxies, they you know, go into orbit around each other. Mm. Uh, and it's thought that um, those also will eventually merge. Those will be spectacular mergers. And so there's there are also telescope gravitational wave telescopes that aim to look for this much lower frequency signal from from supermassive uh, black holes in the yeah. center of galaxies that are that are orbiting each other. Okay. There, there can there seems to be and there's also an idea that there are, um, uh, may have been black holes created in the big bang no. and that some of them are still I see left over, mm. small black holes, so not from the collapse of, of stars. Yeah. And you have this weird thing that, according to 
ideas from, from Stephen Hawking that black holes, they do slowly radiate yeah. away and they slowly yeah. shrink, uh, which is extremely surprising. And this is a, this is a hint of like new physics mm. that maybe over our lifetime will start to be explored, but it's a yeah. mixing of quantum mechanics and, and general relativity. Uh, that's still very hard to understand. But this would mean that a lot of primordial black holes from the beginning of the universe, um, if they were small, they would have decayed away by now. But there might be some medium-sized ones that are that are still around. Okay. So our time is uh, coming to an end. So have two or three more questions, a little more light questions, if you want. Okay. So uh, where would you like to be found on the Internet? Uh, if you have a Twitter account or something, you want to be followed, or maybe I, you just I, don't want people to contact you <laughs> at all. I don't really have any of these things. Yeah, I should. No. Uh, I have a, a, a page at uh, Stockholm University, which which I should. Uh, you remind me, I should update. We've just changed <laughs> the web page, okay. and we need to move uh, content uh, from the old one that's not available anymore to them. So. Um, and we will try to keep updates there. But this is, um, you know, this is just my name at Stockholm University. Okay. And we can link that in the show notes to the on the podcast as well. Do you have anything else? Do you want to plug? No, not at the moment. Except to, to, ex- what I mentioned earlier to stay tuned that um, uh, we will be able to say uh, more about this uh, connection between neutrinos and, and blazers. I think I think yeah. very soon. Yes. That should be exciting. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and uh, as a finishing question, uh, where in the solar system would you like to live? Uh, except, except Earth. Earth. <laughs> yeah, except Earth. Uh, goodness. Hard question. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I assume that it's like I have some equipment or something, so it's like I can manage acceptably. Yeah, you can manage. <laughs> I, I, think, I think one of these places on um, one of these moons of, of Saturn, I suppose, maybe Titan or something yeah. like this. But I think being able to look up in the sky and see Saturn and rings and, and yeah. that would be that would be a dream come true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A nice view. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Rymdpodden. Connect with us at astronomiskungdom.se slash rymdpodden. See you at the next episode.